Hello, I'm Paul Heaney, VP Editorial Director of R&D World Magazine. I'd like to welcome you to the second episode of the R&D 100 podcast, where we look at the science of innovation and what's new in research. Each episode looks at a past R&D 100 award winner, and we are excited to bring you another one here today. And I'm Amy Kalnoskis, R&D World's Senior Editor. As Paul said, we'll be talking about another R&D 100 winner here today. Last time on our inaugural podcast, you caught that, right? We examined the Containerized Biocontainment System, or CBCS for short. That was the medical transport unit created in response to the Ebola outbreak, and once again, used at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Again, if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. I'm sure you do. Uh, as you should too, Paul, right? <laughs> of course. And also, we are available on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, or I think pretty much wherever you get your podcast these days. Yep, we are. Hey, well, regardless, Paul and I are excited to entertain you today, and I hope you'll share this new podcast with your friends and colleagues. All right, so Amy, before we get started, I wanted to mark the one-year anniversary of the new website, which is rdworldonline.com. Um, We've had more than a half million page views in the one year since we relaunched the, the website. And uh, I bet, Amy, that you cannot guess the most popular article or news release in the last year. Now, uh, now I'm saying that other than, let's say, the R&D 100 or our annual global financial forecast or any of our, you know, our uh, content that we have written ourselves. So of the PR kind of pieces that we get in that we post, what do you think, uh, let's start with the technology. Can, do you have any kind of guesses as to what, what the technology is of the, the top article? All right, technology. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much the entire site. Okay, <laughs> let, let me start from the top um, and sound as smart as I can. Particle physics? Not uh, even close. No? Hey, how about oscilloscopes? <laughs> uh, equally far away. All right, all right a new x-ray telescope that can like see Mars and beyond, or, hey, how about a promising cure for cancer? You are really, really cold, Amy. Oh. So, so number two, I'll give you a number, I'll give you the top two. So right. number two was, are your stainless steel surfaces being corroded by repeated bleach use? Which, you know, kind of sort of it makes sense in the COVID world here, right? <laughs> I, I could understand why people would look that up or be interested in that. Oh my gosh. Well, I learned how not to use bleach on stainless steel a long time ago. So, all right. That did one, you? Did you? Okay. I, I obviously, was, that a, was that a home thing or? <laughs> no, it was mom. Don't do it thing. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> all right. So the number one PR piece over the last year, I'm going to read you the headline. Low cost smart diaper can notify caregiver when it's wet. <laughs> A new disposable affordable smart diaper embedded with an RFID tag is designed by MIT researchers to sense and communicate wetness to a nearby RFID reader, which in turn can wire wirelessly send a notification to a caregiver that it's time for a change. Okay, wait a second. Where is that RFID chip located on that diaper? And number two, is it disposable? And if so, that means you have to put <laughs> multiple RFID chips in. And what if it does get wet or, you know, something else well it uh, is gonna get wet I, well i don't know I mean, I, you like, know amy why don't you go to the website and look it up thus ensuring that maybe it'll stay number one for our, our first two years <laughs> okay i'll join the half million pages <laughs> and look that one up Paul. all right 
So uh, I, I know you just got back from uh, kind of a summer vacation. Uh, Oregon? Did you go to Oregon? Well, you know what? Um, my sister, my nephew, two dogs and I took a camping trip up the northwest coast. And nice. we went from Oregon to Washington down through northern California. So it was, we figured out it was 1,500 miles in 11 days oh at gosh. nine different locations. But it was absolutely stunning. And it's a beautiful coast. Um, I just had, I had no idea. And more importantly, we caught it before all the fires hit. So oh, yeah, that would yeah. have been in smoke and some of it on the return home would have, would have been fire. But um, yeah, I, I felt like I could move. I was ready to come back and move there. Honestly, Paul, it was just, it was stunning and a great way to, to, to go on vacation during COVID because we were basically just in campgrounds. I was going to say, yeah, easy way to socially distance if you're oh, out absolutely. in the middle of nowhere, and it, right? And it was remote, pretty remote camping. So it was, it, it was pretty easy. Yeah. How about you? What you, you did something this summer. I think yeah. Lance and I went up to uh, the Northern part of the lower peninsula of Michigan. So oh. uh, Traverse city, which is a beautiful area. Um, it's also the cherry growing capital of either the country or the world, I'm not sure which, huh. but uh, they have a big cherry festival most years there, not this year, but uh, just a beautiful kind of almost New England-ish area. Wow. Uh, the, the water in the Grand Traverse Bay is crazy. It's like blue and green and it's cold, but it almost looks from a lot of vantage points like it could be the Caribbean. Oh, and yeah. Great foodie area. Then we went down to Saugatuck, which is a beautiful beach town on uh, Lake Michigan. And uh, yeah, it was it was a nice a nice getaway, and we were able able to socially distance. So it was uh, it was a good way to kind of recharge a little bit. Yeah, I think um, a lot of vacations, at least friends and families have told me, have been in the great outdoors because it's a whole lot easier. But yeah, that that blue green, we also saw that at Lake Shasta, absolutely wow. stunning, and, and along the coast, and then again in the Mendocino Bay. I I'm like, boy, I grew up on the East Coast, and I just remember sort of a brownish greenish blackish beach <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> this was great well yeah it, all it, right we regenerated right we I have we, we came back and we had the the 2020 r&d 100 awards presentation that was uh very recently and we had it online since we couldn't do it in person and we divided it up into three different uh awards presentations three days in a row and it, it went, went really well and we're we're proud of all our new uh r&d 100 award winners so you're know, gonna have a whole bunch of new ones to uh investigate this podcast in the coming months so yeah lots of lots of uh, grist for our podcast mill i'm excited well let's get to the uh, central topic of today's podcast amy oh right right <laughs> okay so um yeah well what last time we did CBSC and that had a mm -hmm. real connection to COVID. So you referenced something a little early, earlier. Are we going two for two? Uh, sort of. Uh, we're jumping to a more recent winner. If you remember, the CBCS was a 2016 winner of the R&D 100. And today we are talking about a winner from 2019 and it's called Retro RX. I really like that name, by the way. And it, it, Sort of rings a bell, but no, I'm not old enough to remember the old-fashioned soda fountains, but I do remember the big RX with the X <laughs> on the, like, italicized on the corner pharmacy. So, yeah, uh, I'm not that old, but old enough to, to, to recognize the RX for what it's worth. Okay, okay. But what's what's well, going on here with Retro RX? 
Well, so RetroRx is actually, it's made up of two different parts and it was developed by researchers at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And there are two easy tools developed for responding to disease outbreaks as well as re-emergent events, uh, re-emergence events. Um, they use web-based information to assess infectious disease outbreaks. So users can receive like visual analytics and then other actionable information to mitigate the outbreaks and protect the population. Wow, that sounds like something. Okay, it sounds like exactly what we needed in 2020. <laughs> For sure. Uh, okay, but you said there are two parts to it, right? Yes. So one is pronounced I do, but it's spelled A-I-D-O. Uh, and the other one is Red Alert. So IDU was the first to be developed and then it was followed by Red Alert. And with both of the tools, the ideas were you know, initiated or, or developed in response to a competitive proposal call by the Department of Defense. So specifically, this was the Defense Threat Reduction Agency and they were interested in improving and developing new analytical tools like models for global infectious disease surveillance. Wow, so that's 2019, but whoa, this is crazy timely, Paul. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, it's actually like someone out there knew that there were such things as global disease outbreaks. Oh, you really aren't going to get me started. <laughs> no, no. Started, are you? <laughs> no, no, no. So let's okay, not go okay. down that route. <laughs> so anyway, I spoke with two of the lead researchers there, Alina Deshpande, who led the team, and Jeffrey Fairchild. Uh, my name is Alina Deshpande, and I am the group leader for the Biosecurity and Public Health Group within Bioscience Division at Los Alamos National Laboratory. You know, my, my educational background has been in biomedical sciences, and so I've always been uh, involved in both kind of wet lab uh, pathogen detection, human marker detection, uh, assays and development of new technologies, and then on kind of the uh, information science side, it's more been in the world of epidemiology. My, so my name is Jeffrey Fairchild. Uh, my uh, official title at the lab is scientist, uh, which is incredibly descriptive. Um, so I am a computer scientist by training. Uh, so my undergrad is in math and computer science. Uh, I've got a master's and a PhD also in computer science. Um, my research areas uh, are kind of wide ranging, everything from data fusion, machine learning, large scale data analytics has been a consistent theme and disease modeling and surveillance have been a consistent theme. All right, the thing that strikes me already is that she's a biologist and he's the computer geek. And I say this as a writing geek myself, Jeff, so don't be offended, but am I right? Yeah, yeah, you're right on. You've got them both pegged. Okay, you know what, it's always interesting to, to me to see how like in some industries, say publishing for us, the IT type people interact with the non-computer techie people, right? But oftentimes it's a clash of creative versus linear thinkers and it doesn't go very well. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just like, two, they're speaking two different languages. They might as yeah, well, yeah. right? And, and each has their own priorities and they just don't click. So now I'm curious, considering how successful this was, I mean, it won our award, how this works in the, super duper scientific R&D realm. We're, we're gonna get into that, Amy, I promise, but, but don't jump the gun on me just yet here. But that's my job, Paul. <laughs> of course it is. But, well, let's, let's start out, let's talk about this idea, uh, about this area of disease prediction. Okay. So historically, there've been quite a few 
like traditional epidemiological, which I can't ever say that word, models that are available for disease forecasting and prediction. Um, and, and they rely on very deep you know, subject matter expertise. But there was a need for developing like rapid, easy to use and easy to interpret tools. So things that could be used by you know, a whole diversity of decision makers. So you know, we're talking like public health analysts and scientists and people like that. Okay. Um, so they wanted tools that could be used, again, by a broad diversity of people in that area of infectious disease surveillance. So these people could use them to implement actions for controlling the outbreak you know, for mitigation. So with I do, Alina said that one of the primary motivations is, what can we learn from history besides just the basic data? What can we learn from history besides just straight case counts and time series? Uh, is there anything in outbreak pictures, epidemiological um, features of various historical outbreaks that we can actually derive all the possible information that we can from these historically occurred outbreaks to inform us about what we can do to deal with either unfolding situations or situations that have happened and we're trying to plan or pre and prevent future occurrences. Interesting. So with the CBCS from our last podcast, I recall that it was the big Ebola outbreak in what, um, all right, it wasn't that long, 2014, I think. Mm -hmm. It kind of pushed them to develop the product in the first place. I assume there was a similar event with I do, or was it the same Ebola incident that also spurred this idea? No, there, there wasn't actually. The genesis here was not a singular event, but rather just the recognition of problems with data sharing and, and problems with having accurate data problems with a lack of tool at your fingertips. So someone would need to go searching for something they could possibly use. I mean, honestly, it was more of a broader recognition of things that needed to be done to improve infectious disease surveillance in the health policy and the scientific community. So what I do offers is it's building parallels to historic outbreaks that look similar to what an unfolding situation might be. So then it informs the user about what they could do in terms of mitigating this unfolding situation they're in the middle of. Um, it gives them a little bit more of a situational contact, context. The, um, the Los Alamos team also incorporated forecasting pieces, which helped to give a picture of what could happen in the near future with these outbreaks. Here's Jeffrey. What we're doing with the, the forecasting in I do is kind of drawing on some research that has been done in the weather community for a long time. And what the weather community has basically done is said, okay, we have all of this historical data that we've collected over potentially decades. And what we're really interested in is trying to use that historical data in order to identify what is likely to happen given what's going on right now. Uh, and so uh, there's a method that we were using that essentially does just that. It's called the method of analogs. And the method of analogs relies on you having a, a relatively large representative sample of historical data that you can draw off of. And so what we're doing is we're saying, well, we have all this historical disease data. The user provides input about their current situation. And then so what we do is we collect all of the historical data that's relevant to what the user's input is. We compute essentially a a distribution of, of that data, a weighted distribution that's, that's related to the user's input. So we weight it by how close each of the historical data are to the user's input. 
And then from there, we can start to actually draw out forecasts based on how those historical data went forward from the time period of the user's input. And so as an example, so suppose that uh, the user provides input, you know, they're, they're two weeks into an Ebola outbreak that's going on in Africa. And so what we would do is we would collect all historical data on Ebola. We would place the user's data point there and we'd say, okay, where, which of those historical outbreaks is most similar to that user's input? And then we kind of computer distribution of those weighted by how close they are to that user's input. And then we say, okay, looking at those historical outbreaks from that point, two weeks into the outbreak, how do those outbreaks look going forward? And we use that as the forecast for, uh, for what they're likely to see. This results in moderately accurate forecasts uh, in some cases, and the confidence intervals can grow quite large uh, as, you know, as you get further out from where the user is. But it gives the public health analysts a really nice rough approximation of what they can expect to see. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward, Paul. But if you come and clarify, what are the inputs he's talking about? I'm guessing that those are like the known variables for the current outbreak they're dealing with? Yes, yes. Okay, so data such as how big the outbreak has gotten already or things like that? Yeah, I, like, you know, it could be where in the world this is happening, what the disease is. Um, and, and then a lot of the further inputs vary based on what disease type we're dealing with. So if it's like uh, norovirus, which is, you know, a gastrointestinal disease, the system might ask you questions about uh, the food that was involved. Um, if it was, you know, dengue, they would ask questions about what time of the season it is because that's mosquito-borne disease. So, you know, whether or not it's the rainy season or the dry season is important to the calculations and forecasting for that particular type of an incident. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, no, I got it. That makes perfect sense. So in other words, they're custom tailoring the inputs based on each disease that is being studied. Yes, correct. Um, so the process of getting through that and identifying those questions, uh, I mean, it was a really manual process, as you might imagine. Um, they have about 29 different features they look at. But one of the goals, Jeff told me, was that answering those questions should not be a huge task on the analyst part, you know, the person using this. Mm -hmm. um, it should be a question they're familiar with. You know, likely they have some basic background with that particular disease and they're familiar with that particular region of the world. So they should, if the system's working correctly, you know, have a fairly easy time answering these questions so they can get to the results pretty quickly. Okay, okay, again, still makes sense. Keep going. Okay. So, you know, I mentioned this is a two-part product, the first being I do. And then the second half of RetroRx is called Red Alert, and it is mainly used for long-term planning and for warning people of re-emergence of a crisis. So here's both Alina and Jeffrey again. Say there was an outbreak of uh, measles that occurred in a particular country, and without really understanding what, historic, what the historical context is, uh, it might be difficult for somebody to determine whether this outbreak represents a re-emergence of the disease or whether it's just part of, uh, of, of the endemic annual process. The, the goal is to be able to inform longer-term planning of, for a particular infectious disease and to prevent re-emergences. In case of uh, Red Alert, honestly, there is nothing there uh, that, that does the kind of analysis that we are offering, uh, which is potential detection of potential re-emergence. Most re-emergence detection occurs 
as a consequence of subject matter experts um, essentially reviewing data for multiple years or looking at situations and then essentially because of their subject matter expertise, determining whether a reemergence uh, is, is called or not. This tool is trying to essentially do that. And currently there doesn't exist any other kind that's like it. And something else that, uh, that might be worth adding is that to our knowledge, we're the first people to really try to quantify reemergence in kind of uh, an intelligent, scientific, automated way. Reemergence is often more a qualitative assessment than a quantitative assessment. And so we are actually trying to, to find markers in data across many different data streams that are indicative of reemergence. And to our knowledge, we're the first people to do something quite like that. I think this is kind of a classic case where a lot of the work that we had done on AD, I, and I do uh, in the years prior to Red Alert, you know, in science, you typically come up with a lot of questions during the course of a project. And I think Red Alert was uh, kind of the result of that in a way. You know, we, we had kind of started to think about reemergence in some of the context of diseases. And then Alina had the idea that we could, you know, come up with this kind of automated way to actually de detect reemergence. And so it's kind of you ask one question, and then while you're trying to answer that one question, three new questions kind of appear. And I think Red Alert was kind of kind of that sort of situation. So I thought the team they put together was really interesting. You know, like we talked about a little bit before, it was, it was comprised of two broad categories of scientists on development of both of the tools, the biologists and then the computer scientists. Alina told me that each group did have interest and knowledge about the other areas. So it wasn't completely, you know, two siloed sets of experts that were coming together. Um, the biologists, you know, were needed primarily because they have the know-how on, on what data is needed for the development of the tools. And plus they have, you know, an idea of what the algorithm would be needed to come up with answers to the questions they're, you know, they're trying to ask with these tools. Uh, the computer scientists folks obviously are needed simply because the biologists don't know how to make the tool itself. And the challenges they faced at first were, were really just understanding, I think, the language of the other people, but uh, they did overcome that pretty quickly. Um, so from the computer science perspective, in order to build the tool and develop the algorithms and whatnot, we needed data. And we needed data in a nice structured way. And in order to kind of understand how the data needed to be structured, we had to work very closely with one another. And so there was a lot of interaction between kind of the public health biology side and the computer science side where we would be developing a tool and you know we would need a spreadsheet in this exact format you know and then this this cell right here has to have this value or this value but not this value and so uh, you know it's 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 got that kind of picky thing that you need in order to make an automated tool and so we worked very closely with one another it was an iterative process for sure where the biologists would come up with something they might discover that there was some new you know, feature that really mattered for a particular disease, you know, so, and, you know, what Alina mentioned earlier, you know, maybe the, the existence or not of a dry season or a wet season, like that, that sort of variable might be key. And so we, the computer scientists need to know that so that we can then build that into our code. Uh, and then likewise, we would need to come up with a structure for the data that we would pass on to the biologists so that they could structure their data in that way. And they would work on collecting the data and organizing the data and making sure that everything made sense and was consistent. It's definitely an iterative process. Communication was a challenge early on, but I feel like we uh, adapted really well to it. Uh, I speak biologists better than I ever have, and I think they probably speak computer scientists better than they ever have. I personally learned uh, uh, something that that was very interesting. As you know, as a biologist, 
you know, we tend to dream a lot. And in experimental biology, you're like, oh, well, let's try this out. Let's try that. If it doesn't work, let's try something out. Um, and in this particular case, it was a very high-quality product that had to be delivered. So it was not a research. I mean, it was a research uh, effort, of course, but it was not – it had to have an endpoint. And it had to have an endpoint in a certain period of time. You couldn't just do this for the rest of your career. So what was interesting is that I personally learned a lot from the computer scientists because every time the biologists would come up and say, well, let's just have make this happen, you know. So can't you make this tool look like this? And why can't you do it this way? Uh, you know, that, this is the kind of conversation we would have. And the computer scientists would be like, well, what is your priority? Is it this? Is it A or B or C? Because, you know, we can't do all of them and not produce a quality product. And the first time I heard that, as a PI, I, I, I balked because I said, well, what do you mean? Everything is a priority. And, and it, it, it took a little bit of reflection on my part and, and a little bit of you know, slapping myself and saying, you know, you, you gotta stop and think about this because it, it is absolutely essential that if you wanna deliver a quality product, uh, you must have a priority list. And, and that I really learned that uh, from our computer scientists on our team. So, Amy, earlier we were talking about the computer types and the non-computer types. Mm -hmm. You had that uh, interest in, in that area of this. So this is sort of your answer. Uh, they each learned a lot from each other. Here's Jeff's side of it. One of the things that, um, that I learned from the biologists was actually kind of in the, in the realm of designing a nice user interface that was friendly. Um, so <laughs> I often live in the world of, you know, Linux terminals and writing command line stuff and all that. And it's not exactly user-friendly is what I would call it. And uh, so in developing, I've developed websites before, but uh, developing a website that's designed specifically by people that are experts in epidemiology or public health or biology uh, is very different than writing something that's going to be used by another computer scientist. And so I learned a lot about how to design a good, useful user interface. It's forgiving because you have to you know, if, if the user provides some bad input, you can't just yell at them and be like, hey, give me the right input. You have to explain why and then give them an example of what the right input looks like and, and really convey to the user, honestly, through many subtle means in some cases, uh, how the user should interact with the tool. Um, you don't want them to have to go read a 20-page PDF in order to understand how to use the tool. It should be intuitive, and, but it should still get across all the information that it needs to get across. And so there's a really uh, delicate balance there uh, that I feel working with Alina's, uh, Alina and, and the team of uh, biologists and public health people. Uh, we had uh, external reviewers from the CDC and the WHO that were really instrumental in helping guide uh, the development of the user interface as well. And that was, that was really um, something that I benefited from greatly. That's so refreshing to hear, Paul. Um, I'm just curious, what did they do as far as a beta version or testing designs? I mean, normally that would be involved in something like this. I'm curious what theirs looked like. Yeah, yeah. So one of the first things that Jeff did was create a mock-up that it wasn't really functional, it was just visual. So you could interact with it, but there was no real actual meat on the back end. Uh, he said that sometimes creating a skeleton that people can see and actually interact with a little bit it gets their brain going, and then once they start thinking, the creative juices start to flow from there. Um, and then you can start to say, well, you know, what, what if you tweak this, and what will, do, what will that do to this? And what if you added this little feature here? What if you swap these two buttons around? 
So it sounded to me like it was a very deliberate, logical process. Um, he told me they'd have weekly meetings. They'd walk everyone through the updates they'd done over the previous week. And there, everyone could really work together to identify things that needed to be fixed or things that could be changed even a little more to be made better. And sometimes we would have serious disagreements about those things. And so we would have to uh, discuss them and say, okay, well, what really is the right choice here? And sometimes, you know, those, those decisions did not come easily. Other times they were like, oh, well, obviously we, we should have made that decision in retrospect. So yeah, it was a very iterative process where we constantly uh, worked on the user interface over the course of multiple years. The end result uh, uh, worked out very well, I feel. Yeah, I think um, like Jeff said, we started off with really internal within team iterative and like he said, you know, couldn't have happened without, you had to have iteration. And so because there was such good collaboration between or within the team, it was you know easy to keep uh, refining. Once we reached a point where we felt okay, we've looked at this you know long enough, and for us in our hands this seems to be working. We kind of expanded our reviewer uh, list, and we started uh, seeking out input from kind of a local within Lanol uh, biologist uh, people uh, who were not involved really in developing the tool, but you know, understood what it was for. So we kind of got feedback from them. Once that happened, so we kind of did a layered approach to getting um, reviews back. Of course, as part of our development process, uh, we were required to get feedback from people outside of LANO, from kind of the actual potential users of these tools. And so uh, the Defense uh, Threat Reduction Agency, our sponsors, did suggest names and experts who they had asked us to reach out to and, and do um, get some feedback from. So we did, uh, we kind of went outside and, and reached out to them too. So it was kind of a layered approach of, of uh, refining the tools. All right, all right. Well, okay. The elephant in the room that I've got to ask about, and I'm sure. <laughs> I'm waiting for this. <laughs> I'm sure we've prepped enough of our audience to wanna to ask the same question is COVID. Was there any proof of concept or does this not work with something like COVID because it's too new and, and there's, there is no history or, or can you compare it to other coronaviruses? Were these tools used at the beginning of the outbreak? Well, Alina said that they actually did use IDU earlier when the pandemic first began because you know, the point of ADU is to be, or IDU, excuse me, is to be used in the early unfolding stages. Mm -hmm. And so you know, they didn't have any historical COVID-19 outbreaks, but they did have outbreaks from SARS and MERS. And so a lot of the transmission features, uh, death rates, modes of transmissions were similar. When we looked at some of the features or some of the, the outbreak features for that particular outbreak, at the time, transmission had started occurring more in hospitals. And uh, that was uh, one of the features that got pulled out from one of our historical MERS outbreaks, the Korean outbreak, that if you wanted to do quick contact tracing, the best place to start would be hospitals and try to find if there are people in ICUs in the hospitals. Because at the time, it had not been yet uh, you know, there was a lot of folks going to the hospital, but they had not been immediately diagnosed with coronavirus. Uh, it was like just the respiratory symptoms and uh, I can't breathe and, you know, just the ICU uh, admissions. And one of the things that had been identified in the MERS outbreak uh, in South Korea was that if we paid attention, if they had paid attention to the hospital admissions, 
they could quickly catch uh, how many people were getting impacted. And so this was something that we had called out very earlier on. This was, of course, back in February or uh, March or so. So we did use I do uh, then. Red Alert is not yet developed uh, for, you know, and, and it is definitely our intention to um, adapt uh, or add a feature to Red Alert so that in going to the future, uh, with all the data that we have now, we should be able to develop a supervised machine learning approach or one of the algorithms for um, COVID to detect potential reemergence going forward. So Amy, one of the things I like to ask researchers and scientists is how they encourage innovation. You know, what's their secret sauce, especially when you have, you know, a multidisciplinary team like that RetroRx team at Los Alamos. And I loved their answer. Listen to this. I would say the key is, is communication, collaboration, and having a completely open mind and a non-defensive attitude. You know, a lot of us kind of tend to get into our boxes and as, as we age, we seem to have, we get very set in our ways. So, <laughs> personally speaking. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think having, having really an open mind and being willing to reflect on and think about and, and uh, have this healthy interchange of ideas and different perspectives, that is one thing that really helped in our team because we had such different disciplines uh, people thought about the problem in a completely different manner. And that was great because their perception was not something that, you know, a computer scientist's perception is completely different from what a biologist is thinking about. And I think that really helped. Yeah, I, so I love this question and I love Alina's answer. Uh, just to kind of tack on to that a little bit, I think that, so I personally learned a lot from Alina as a leader. Uh, so Alina has a really good uh, open environment when, when it comes to doing research projects. And it's basically, you know, I'm all ears, you come to me with an idea and I will consider it, basically whatever that idea is, like nothing's off the table. And I really loved that. I thought that that really fostered innovation. It made everybody feel like they could contribute to the project, right? And so students were just as likely to offer up some unique solution uh, just as likely as a staff member, you know, that has had a PhD and has worked for 15 years, right? And it's because they have a different perspective. And I felt like on Alina's team, everybody had kind of an equal voice. And uh, that was a huge benefit to our ability to quickly uh, iterate and make decisions and improve the product. Um, and, you know, I think that that probably is key. I, in my experience, um, the best kind of innovation comes from multidisciplinary teams, um, at least multidisciplinary teams that are willing to have that kind of open dialogue um, because, you know, precisely because of that uh, kind of uh, different, the different perspectives that everybody brings to the table. Oh, well, I love their answer too. And there's a lot of proof that this type of collaboration works. These are absolutely the kind of people I love to work with. And, and fortunately, I've had a little bit of experience there, but I, I know what it can be like when you're not working like that. And it, it just stifles the process, I feel. So yeah, sounds, yeah. yeah, you know, but this sounds logical and yet, you know, creati creativity is encouraged. And, and as I said earlier, when you get those multi multidisciplinary teams in, innovation just seems to flow out as a result because you're not, you don't get a lot of people thinking the same way, right? Mm -hmm. In these, this case, not even like the same language in as sure. far as 
terminology, right, and vocabulary. And I've heard of this working, or at least the beginnings of it. So, you know, I cover obviously on EE World more the software and hardware engineers. Mm-hmm. Well, historically, they've worked in relative isolation. And um, even though the final product, product incorporated both hardware and software, but hardware companies are starting to develop their own software stacks. So there's this trend towards managing concurrent development of software and hardware. Mm-hmm. And that's been found to streamline design and increase communication because as each discipline begins to learn the language of the other. So this was like running through my head when I'm listening to Jeff and Alina because it's, it's actually across industries and it's so refreshing to hear that it's, it's in practice and, and we're, we're connected with this. And it, it goes to the, the wider topic too of just diversity on teams and oh, having yeah. people of, uh, Personal diversity as well as professional diversity always makes the end product better. And I, I know you've done a lot of work on uh, our sister publication, Design World, has a women in engineering program. And I know I think you've kind of run into a little bit of that there too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I did one of my EE Entrepreneur podcasts, plugging it, but <laughs> you're, well, uh, you're welcome to. <laughs> what, you know, one, one, uh, this one woman, what she, she, and this comes up frequently, and even some research about um, diversity in engineering and women in engineering is, and it, there's not a good thing or bad thing, is that women and men bring something different, they think differently, and they bring it to the table. And her experience over quite a lot, several decades in the engineering field has been that when she was, when she was involved and other women were involved, and when they were at the table with, you know, men of similar skill sets, it was so much more productive almost every single time. And it wow. just comes down to diversity. It's, it, it, and and the, the folks here, they, they proved it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got a computer guy and an epidemiologist and biologists, and you wouldn't think they'd have anything in common. But, when, <laughs> but look what they did by communicating and look what they did by, you know, uh, working with their diverse skill sets. I love it. And then one last thing I have to, I have to throw at you, Amy. Yeah. Um, I remember in the pretty recently, wasn't there, uh, didn't Bill Schweber, Schweber, I'm not sure how to say his name. Schweber, not, yeah, yeah. He, he, Schweber, did he, he wrote something that I, I think kind of ties into this. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Oh yeah. So he's, he talked about, Hey engineer, um, be lucky you're not an epidemiologist. <laughs> and, and if anyone wants to check it out, it's on eeworldonline.com. Just okay. type in the word epidemiologist because it's not something that frequently comes up on <laughs> eeworldonline.com. And it was, a, and he's been an engineer for probably, oh, many, 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 many decades. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, it was very interesting because he was talking about you know, the, the processes that an engineer has to go through and then the process that an R, someone in R&D has to go through. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, you know, if we can, Paul, maybe we tack that link on once you post this blog. And yeah, we, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's, it was enjoyable. It was a bit more of an opinion piece, but um, he, he ha- comes from a place of great strength where he can, he can make that opinion. And I, I think people will agree. So it was a very timely. <laughs> very cool. Thanks for sharing. Sure. Well, I think that I think that's all we have uh, for this episode. But uh, as always, thanks for co-hosting with me. It is always a fun time with you, Miss Ms. Kalinowskis. <laughs> yes, Mr. Heaney. Well, hey, audience, if you're a past R&D 100 winner and you have an interesting creation or development story to tell us, we should talk. Come on, all of us. Please email us the details at researchdevelopment at wtwhmedia.com. That's research development 
at wtwhmedia.com. We'd certainly love to consider you for a future R&D 100 podcast. Hey, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at eeworld underscore Amy, that's A-I-M-E-E, and at WTWH underscore Paul Heaney, P-A-U-L-H-E-N-E-Y. And hey, don't forget to share this podcast with all of your colleagues too. Hopefully they will enjoy it as much as you do. Until next time, (laughs) until next time, this is Paul Heaney here. And Amy Kalinowskis over here. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening. Mm